You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome, all you wiretappers out there. I have a special guest today on the Zoom. You might see the audio is a little bit different, but you're growing used to that after this COVID thing. He's an author. He's written three books. We're going to talk about mostly it's a really unknown, untapped subject of connections and relationship with organized crime in the United States. And that's the title of that is The Mafia and the Gays. He's also written Railroaded, The Homophobic Prosecution of Brandon Woodruff and Queer Joints, Wise Guys and G-Men. So there's sounds like two out of three books are about the mob and gay clubs primarily because that's where mob guys would have interacted with gay men, I would imagine. And we had our own clubs here in Kansas City that were primarily frequented by gay men. And, and the mob had a little piece of it. Nick Savella, through other intermediaries, were getting a little piece of it, was getting a little piece of the action in particular. One of them was a, a bookie. So we had some action going there in a club late at night. This one in particular was like no man's land. There was a jewel box, which was mainly for transvestites that performed, were singers and dancers, and, and they had a really great floor show. And then right next door was one called The Colony, and it was the guy don't debt was a bookie. And, of course, the mob was making money off of that, and they made all kinds of connections in and around both these joints because they were kind of places that a lot of your professional criminals would go also that was a hangout where you could make those connections. And the colony always said that was like no man's land after about midnight because it was a scary, dangerous place to be. And there was off-duty policemen. There were, and some of them were a little bit edgy, I'll tell you right now. And, and they were protected. The vice unit was a hands-off deal in Kansas City, I noticed, as a young policeman even by then. Policemen drank for free in there, which is pretty typical of a mob joint. If you want a free drink, just go to a mob joint if you're a copper. But there was also some of the dancers and the performers, the transvestite joint next door. The jewel box would go in there. Suburbanites would come in and have their little night out of slumming, and they would go see the transvestite shows and so they could go back and brag to the fans how they went over and saw this show and how what great performers they saw that night. And then they would go, they stayed up late. They would go next door to the colony after the jewel box closed down. And again, it was wild. They're drug dealers. Pimps, prostitutes, policemen, professional criminals of all stripe, performers from the jewel box, suburbanites, college boys would go in there. It was it was a wild and crazy place. And our friend here, Philip Crawford, Mr. Crawford has written a book about those exact kind of clubs in New York City and, and the New York mob. So, Philip, welcome. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Gary. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So let's talk about the New York City scene, I guess, mainly because the most famous event, I'd say, in gay history is the riot at the Stonewall Inn, which was connected to the mob and a variety of other clubs down there. Is it the Greenwich Village area? Yeah, that's right. The Stonewall was in Greenwich Village, and that happened in 1969. And actually, the Stonewall had opened up three years earlier. I think it was 1967 it may have opened. And the Stonewall was uh, primarily owned by Manny Ganello. He was a Genovese capo. He controlled much of the gay scene in New York. And the Genovese family generally did. 
but Manny and Ello in particular, you know, did the day-to-day management to all these gay joints together with many of the other crime families. I mean, it was a moneymaker for all of New York's families, and particularly the Gambino family and the Colombo family and the Bonanno family. You know, they all had extensive interest in the gay joints. And what was interesting, it was such a lucrative enterprise. What they ended up doing is basically ceding control over all of them to Matty Yanello. And he kind of oversaw everybody's interests from various, you know, soldiers and capos and crime families. And he oversaw it all for everybody. So it all operated relatively smoothly. And you didn't have a lot of disputes among, you know, the different families in terms of, you know, who was getting a piece of what action. He he did a real good job at it. Really well-liked guy. He was a good negotiator. It was all disputes among everybody in the bar scene. And he just turned it into a moneymaker for these crime families. You know, he got into it in 1945 and he wasn't prosecuted for any of it until 1985. So he had a good 40 year run in, in this racket and just made everybody a pile of money. Oh, that's Matty the Horse, who was a Genovese man. I think this recent, didn't he run a whole lot of peep shows and different things like that in 42nd Street, back when 42nd Street was such a going Jesse? They just had a, uh, I didn't ever see it, the TV series about the deuce. I think they called it the deuce, and, and he was a central character in that. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, he you know, was involved with a lot of the, the, the porno. Um, he was involved with a lot of the peep shows, a lot of the go-go joints, a lot of the gambling, you know, a lot of the bars out of which gambling operated. And you know, what's interesting, before the porn became so visible along in the Times Square area, Yanello actually had private shows for dancers in hotel rooms. And his, you know, his people on the street would meet men interested in viewing it, and they'd get pre-cleared to go see the porno shows in private hotel rooms. But then, of course, the 60s came around, and then by the 70s, everything was out in public, and you know, all bets were off, and then the horses were off to the races. You know, these mob guys, anywhere there's addiction involved, particularly in this case would be sex addiction. And anywhere there's like this gray area where it's it's not like it's a murder or a robbery or or a rape or or anything like this gray area of crime. And people that at that point in time in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, gay men especially were in this gray area. I remember when I was a young policeman. Vice unit used to go to the Union Station, which was kind of largely abandoned at that time to the bathroom because a lot of gay men went down there and their object was to get somebody to give them some kind of a sex act mm-hmm. and say, I wanted, they wanted to do that. And then they would arrest them and, and they'd haul in four or five gay men. So it was this kind of sub rosa gray area lifestyle and boy the mob always likes to get into those because you find people you can manipulate you can find people you can control Mm because you've got something on them so that's i'm sure that was part of the thing they like their tentacles into that area it's like me working for the intelligence unit i like to have an informant in all those different subcultures so i can Mm -hmm. at least find out if something happened i could find out something find out who was who the mob they want to have people in all those different subcultures in a gray area that they can go to and find out who was making money and who was doing this and who was doing that. I'm sure that 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 was a big reason why the mob wanted to be in that culture. Plus, they were making money out of those joints, too. Well, well, that was the interesting thing, you know, because being gay, the, the sex act itself was illegal. And for example, in New York in 1923, you know, this, the New York state legislature passed a law that made it illegal 
to even solicit gay sex. You know, the statute was, what was it called? It was called, it was a law against, quote, degenerate disorderly conduct. When you had something that was illegal and even the solicitation was illegal, and even the congregation of these folks was illegal, yeah. and you could get them for it, they would often be picked up for um, loitering for the purpose of soliciting a lewd act or something. Either the mafia actually provided gay men and, and lesbians with kind of a protected zone because they had the political muscle through the corruption of public officials. They had the financial muscle, you know, through the bribery of liquor inspectors and police officers that they could actually provide gay men a safe space where they could congregate, where they could meet, and they'd be relatively unharassed. It still happened. There were still raids. Undercover cops would go into these joints and, and entrap some guy on a solicitation charge. And then the solicitation charge uh, would result in the closure of the place under the liquor authority laws as a disorderly premise. All in all, there was a degree of stability that the mafia provided the community through these establishments, which were just pervasive throughout New York City for decades. And it was kind of an uneasy relationship where, on the one hand, the mafia provided the gay men with some protection. But as you were alluding to earlier... If the mafia needed something from one of these gay men, they knew how to get it. In fact, that was one of the reasons for the Stonewall raids back in 1969, is the NYPD didn't go into Stonewall with the intent of harassing gay people. They went in there because they were looking for some Wall Street bonds that they believe the mob had in possession after they had blackmailed a Wall Street executive to steal the bonds. Because back then, they were all bearer bonds. If you had the bonds, you, you were good in the secondary market with them. And the mob did this a lot of times. They did it with people, you know, on, on Wall Street. They did it with political officials. They did it with judges. They ruined a lot of lives. So that was kind of a, it was a very precarious relationship between the mafia and the gay men. On the one hand, we needed the protection. On the other hand, when it suited the mafia, they had no problem exploiting us on it. Yeah, well, that's the mob. They have no problem exploiting anybody that shows any weakness in any little chink in a person's armor, any way they can get an edge on you, they're going to do it. It's like I've dealt with informants and, and they were constantly trying to see where they might get some edge on me. Like, remember this one guy is wearing a nice leather coat. And I said, man, that's a nice coat you got. He said, you want one? He said, I got four or five of these at home. And of course he was dealing with boosters. Right. And I know he did give another guy a really expensive watch. The guy ended up getting in a shitload of trouble over it. But they're just constantly looking for that is to get control over somebody. And when you're gay in the 50s, 60s, and all, all the way up to the 70s, really into the middle 70s, you were illegal. Your normal lifestyle it would be found illegal. You could lose your job. They, there was just all kinds of ways to blackmail you. So Wall Street guy who was gay and they see him hanging out in a gay club and they say, hey, you know, where's that dude work? I heard somebody said he worked in Wall Street. And then you go take a look and see, oh, he's got access to these bonds, which I remember that there was a lot of that stealing them bonds, shipping them another part of the country and then just selling them, you know, like maybe fifty, hundred thousand dollars in bonds and nobody ever even really miss them. Mm hmm. Yeah, they always knew how to maximize their assets. So that was the thing yeah. about the mafia. Yes, they like, did. You know, you, know, you could go in any situation, they had 10 angles that they could exploit it by. And, and, and that's funny what they did with the gay bars. I mean, it wasn't just enough to have the gay bar and use it as an opportunity to either skim cash to avoid, cat, to, to avoid taxes or alternatively to launder money in order to put it into the legitimate economy. You know, depending upon what their needs were, they could do either. They would also run drugs out of the bars. They'd run prostitution out of the bars. They'd run gambling out of the bars. 
you know, there's just no end to what they could do in order to maximize their asset. And with many of these gay bars, it wasn't just the gay bar they operated, but oftentimes they owned the real estate out of which the gay bar operated. They would also have ties to the business brokers who specialized in the sale and, and purchase of bars and nightclubs, you know, or restaurants. Then they would have ties to the people who did the lighting and the sound and tied to the so tie, you know, you'd have mob up security firms and there was just the waste carding, the liquor supply. They had a monopoly on the gay bars, both horizontally and vertically. There's a really vertically integrated industry, and they just never missed an opportunity to make a buck out of what they were doing. I mean, and that was the genius of organized crime. I mean, they, they just knew every angle. And, and what's particularly interesting about the Genovese family, they would finance bars, whether they're gay or straight, they would have private loan companies that were mobbed up. And oftentimes that cash came from their coin-op vendors, and they had this pool of cash, because at the time, most banks would not lend to bars and restaurants because with a liquor license, it was such a, there was a primary asset for the establishment. And if you lost a liquor license, you lost your ability to repay the bank. So a lot of banks just wouldn't touch bars, but the mob would. And if you defaulted on the loan, you know, they wouldn't bust your kneecap. They would just foreclose it. And then they owned another bar. And if it happened to be a straight bar, they'd convert it to a gay bar. And it was really just genius the way they worked and integrated every component of their rackets into the gay bar scene. Because yeah, I would imagine Quite genius. That, really kind of like San Francisco. I think New York, you got to understand, folks, that there was a lot of prejudice against gay men out here in the hinterland, shall we say, in Kansas City. And Particularly a back. lot of gay men migrated to San Francisco. But yes. just I'd say just as many migrated to New York and created a huge big scene after World War II on up in the 50s and 60s. You no. feel a lot safer in New York City than it would in Kansas City. But what about Chicago? Did a lot of the gay guys from Kansas City go to Chicago? Because that was a pretty open place. And, yeah. and again, the mob had such control over the gay scene there. They provided a lot of opportunities for gay men. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, I got the one guy, Red Wimette, who was in the uh, porn business up there. Are you at Red? Yeah, you know, Red. Red, he did some great work up there with, with uh, on the outfit. And they're mm-hmm. showing their control of the porn business. And they were constantly trying to control that. And the gay bars are all, if you think about it, in a lot of areas, they almost be like a, a red light zone or a, right. a combat zone like they tried to do in Boston. A combat zone where there'd be I two quit. or three gay bars, be some peep shows and porn theater, at least one kind of an anchor porn theater. And we had that in Kansas City and I think every major city in New York, Manhattan, they had a lot of uh, mm-hmm. two or three districts kind of like that is my understanding. And they had that in Chicago up there by work. Red's uh, porn shop was. There were several other porn shops in that particular area. Yeah, I remembered reading that in Red's book about how uh, he was in there from what, the mid 70s through the mid 80s or something, or right. uh, 70s to late 80s or whatever. And uh, he, he was saying how, um, you know, that was it the Rush Street crew? Yes, I believe it was. Frank yeah. Swiss from the Rush Street crew. Yeah, they, 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 you know, they were they were just shaking down every go-go joint, every strip club, every, every porn shop, every yeah. bookstore, every gay bar. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, you know, feeding it through Vince Solano up to Joe Lombardo. And, yep. you know, it, it, it was, re- and, 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 and that was kind of another ang- angle of what the mob would do. Sometimes they would own something directly because they financed it, you know, and, and they provided the, you know, the upfront money for establishing the place, you know, but, you know, if it wasn't their joint, they still wanted a piece of it, you yep. know, 
that you get that protection money and, uh, you know, you'd have to pay your street tax to these guys. Yeah. You may have to pay your, in Chicago, you definitely have to pay a street tax more than likely if you're a gray area business. But also, as you said before, there would be a mob connected cleanup company. They would be the people you had to hire to come in and clean up afterwards. Uh, of course, your vending machines were mob owned. And so they had, you had to put their vending machines in. Uh, you, you had to, uh, uh, they, they, you had to go to them if you had any help. Say you got a, a, a gung ho young district copper that all of a sudden started paying attention to you. Well, then you'd have to go to the mob and the mob could then reach out through their political context, their contacts and, and the captain or whatever to get that wayward policeman back off of them again. So it, they just provide all kinds of services. And, and they were paying out a lot. I, I mean, you know, I was astonished when I was starting to read some of the figures the mob was paying off on a weekly or a monthly basis per establishment, per cop. I mean, some of them were paying out $2,000 a month just yeah. to police away. And that's a lot of money. I mean, sometimes, you know, in New York, on, in any given year, the mob would have 100 gay bars. And that was, Matty Ganella was really genius at. He paid off everybody. You know, and I, I mean, I'd love to see his expense sheet at the end of every year, <laughs> where all that money went, because uh, he, he made a lot. He made millions and millions and millions. And he ran it all in 1966. So it was, it was a really typically Genovese. There was a new high-rise office building on West 50th Street. He was up on the, like, the 18th floor, had himself a nice big suite. He had a big office. He had his lawyer, who used to be with the State Liquor Authority, in one office. Then he had Benny Cohen, who was an old associate of Meyer Lansky, who was doing the bro- who was doing financing end of it all. And they, all. and they had their own law library, the conference room, and and it was just a regular business. It's an old-fashioned factoring company. You know that. He met every stereotype too. He was the Italian mobster. He had the Jewish accountant, and was that an Irish lawyer or a German? Yeah. A lot of Jewish associates with the Genovese family. <laughs> Less so on the Gambino side, but the, but the Genovese, after the repeal of Prohibition, I think they were the most successful in terms of making alliances with the Jewish mobsters and kind of bringing them into the fold. Interesting. So what other kind of stories you got in that book? Uh, what kind of things happened uh, in some of these joints? One of my favorite stories is about the Continental Baths. It's probably one of the most iconic gay bathhouses in New York City. And it opened up shortly before Stonewall, but it really had its heyday in the post-liberation years after Stonewall in the 70s when, I mean, New York, and then and let me just backtrack a little bit. After Stonewall, everyone thought the mafia would get out of the gay bars because there was a lot less stigma associated with being gay. The start of the modern day liberation movement for gay folks, there's a lot of pride and people are going to be out and loud. And so a lot of people thought that would be, and at the time, a lot of gay people wanted the mob out of the bars because they were exploiting them to such, to such a degree. But it turned out that the gay community still really required the services of the mob. And the mob didn't want to leave either because it's a moneymaker for them. And so we started to have a lot of just what they were called. You know, today they're called sex clubs. Back in the 70s, they were called orgy rooms. And, you know, and they were primarily in the meatpacking district of New York City where you had these big cavernous warehouse spaces. Well, you still needed the mob to pay off the cops to keep them away from the public sex in these warehouses. And then the mob was providing, you know, a lot of these places and the discos were becoming drug drops in a lot of the gay community at the time. It was the party decades of the 70s. So they wanted the drugs, they wanted the sex, and the mob could fulfill both of those needs. So, you know, you continue to have mob involvement in a lot of these places. For example, there's a lot of 
evidence suggesting that the infamous mine shaft was mob operated on that close to 1985 in the height of the AIDS crisis. And so the mob never really went away. And even when Matty Anello was indicted in 1985 and convicted for his role in, in skimming from some of these gay establishments, they were still pervasive. You know, I mean, obviously, there were still legitimate businessmen, some gay, some straight in the gay industry after Stonewall. But the mob still had an extensive hold over many of these places. And you could always kind of tell which ones were mob owned because they would have back rooms for anonymous sex. They'd be involved in prostitution, sometimes underage. There's, there'd be drug activity. And anytime you had a real kind of, it didn't even necessarily have to be a seedy place in terms of a dive. But I mean, a lot of them were very kind of sophisticated, well put together establishments. But uh, you could always tell that the mob would be in those places. And that included a lot of the bathhouses, not all the bathhouses, but many of them. And among them was Steve Ostro's Continental Bass up in the Hotel Insonia on the Upper West Side. And he he was an old classically trained opera singer and he went into the gay bathhouse business. And, <laughs> right? and But he was singing the Star Spangled Banner at the Italian-American rally that Joe Colombo organized. Oh, really? And he was singing the Star Spangled Banner while Colombo gets shot. That's kind of how close the connection was between the mafia and the gays, that Colombo had no problem having this old queen sing the Star Spangled Banner. And uh, what had happened, you know, for Steve Ostro, uh, the Colombo family involved, because they offered to provide him protection from a rival mafia family from being shaken down if he agreed to install their vending machines. And then the relationship just grew over the years. And as he said in his book, he wrote a memoir about his experience. And he said he doesn't regret any of it. He goes, I, I needed the mob protection and they made life much easier for me. They cut through red tape. He had to provide some taxes, you know, to some agency. I don't know if it was property tax or business tax or what it was. I can't recall. But he said he didn't have the cash. He called him the Colombo family. They had a bag man drop the cash off to him and they just took care of it. It's funny because on the one hand, it's fair to say we don't want the mafia around. But on the other hand, New York gay life or nightlife generally was. A, I mean, you were talking about it earlier about how wild and crazy that place was next to the jewel box. Well, they were they, they definitely knew how to throw a fun party, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the gay community basically kept them around. After Stonewall, a lot of the gay activists were still trying to push to get the mafia out of the bars. But that kind of fizzled out by the 73 or 1974. And basically the gay community just capitulated and said, we're having fun with the mafia. Let it be. And no one ever said another word again. And that was it. Influence is pervasive. On the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side, Times Square, Greenwich Village, any area we had a significant gay population, the mafia was there. And then and that's another thing, too. Like a lot of people say the mafia bars for the gay people were all these kind of dives. And they say that because that's what Stonewall was. And so people assume that was typical of a gay bar. But it really wasn't with straight bars at the Mawbone. Some were clip joints where they were ripping you off with watered down drinks. Yeah. But others were relatively sophisticated, like the Copacabana. Oh, Copacabana, yeah. Frank yeah. Costello owned that at one exactly. time. Exactly. That was no clip joint. You know, they weren't watering down the drinks. And even in the 50s and the 60s before Stonewall, you had really lovely gay bars. That was coat and tie, what they were called key clubs back then, private model clubs. And the mafia, you know, had a, depending upon what audience you were targeting, that would define the bar. Was for a bunch of drag queens or underage street hustlers, yeah, they were at the clip joints, you know, in Greenwich Village. But on the Upper East Side, they were perfectly lovely to accommodate their clientele. The mafia were good businessmen. 
They knew what market they were serving. And I mean, they were just the ultimate capital. Let's say they were really good at what they did. Yeah, I've told guys this before. I've said this on the podcast, but there's a lot of these guys, if they would just taken that knowledge of their brains, their charisma, their, mm-hmm. their organizational abilities, and just put it into a legitimate business, they could have been successful that way too. But, you know, as, as I asked one guy about that and he said, yeah, but he said, that's no fun. This is more fun here. So, <laughs> but, but there's two ways to be a gangster, right? You can be involved in the apparently illegal activity like drug trafficking, or you can go into the legitimate economy, but you still pursue it through illicit means. But they just never have a clean end angle to anything. They just right. But they, don't, they don't like to have the normal rules apply to them. Right. Whenever they want to cut through the red tape, they want to just be able to pick up the phone and cut through the red tape, which is, you know, for a small businessman, that can be gold. <laughs> you ever dealt with a recalcitrant civil clerk, <laughs> then would be able to cut, go right over their head and, and talk to their boss and get something done that they should have done first right off the bat. That's gold, man. But you got to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I knew what exactly was, because a lot of times, you know, in a lot of these trials, you'll hear what the mob is bringing in, but what they're having to pay out very often. Yeah. And it's like that they complain to no end about how much money they got to pay out. Everyone has their hand up. Yeah, they do too. But in the end, I'm sure they net nicely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Philip, this has been great, folks. Uh, Got any other stories that uh, you want to impart to the folks out of this book? Wind this down? No, but I want to say one thing about the book. It's meticulously detailed. Every I is dotted. Every T is crossed. And I think that's the one thing that I really found fascinating about organized crime is just how much of a business it was for them. And in a way, Maddie Anello and the Genovese family was just typical of what they were all about is it was all about money and it was all run pursuant to a very corporate structure, accountants and lawyers and and financers and just how almost unexciting the operation was. I have to say, you know, I started doing the research for the book in 2009 and I just went through probably about 100 Freedom of Information uh, Act requests with the FBI. And and then I must have looked at 10,000 real estate documents and trying to go through the corporate structure of everything, you know, and, and doing requests with the Secretary of State for New York and just to tie it all together. And, and I was just amazed at how many fronts were involved and just how sophisticated, like Carl Moskowitz, you know, who's a relatively unheard of name when organized crime, but how central he was to the Anello organization. And he got indicted in 1985 and was convicted. And then he was a former state liquor authority guy. And I was just amazed at how central just that boring legal role was that he had. And, and that's an interesting thing about the lawyers, too, is how prevalent they were in enabling the mob schemes in terms of the gay bars, particularly when it was illegal for a bar to have gay people or for gay people to get a liquor license. But, you know, just a quick additional aside, Louis Lefkowitz, he was a state attorney general in New York from 1957 to, I think, 1978. He was there for 20 years. He was the longest serving attorney general. He got his start, actually, by being private lawyer in the liquor um, business uh, for the mafia. And he handled a lot of their business. And in fact, his partner, uh, Hyman, Hyman, what was his last name? Hyman Siegel, I believe it was, I stand corrected maybe, ended up getting convicted for bribing the liquor authority after Lefkowitz already became attorney general. But, but that was just how 
unpervasive the mob's influence was that they had it tied to the attorney general for 20 years. I think the thing I still underappreciate about organized crime is the extent to which it really was the fourth branch of government. You know, <laughs> these cities, they had a seat at the table on everything, including the liquor industry. In every major city, including Kansas City, we pride ourselves. We think we're kind of clean here, comparative to Chicago and New York, and we might be. But when you start looking under the surface and all the way up till the 70s, really, when I first went into organized crime unit, it was just changing. There were still a couple of judges over there in the Jackson County Courthouse, you know, criminal judges that were out of that 30s and 40s mob-connected political organization. And, and so there were some head of liquor control in Kansas City up until the middle 70s was a guy that owned a cleanup company and bars that didn't want to have any trouble. They went to him and he was when mob guys were seen in and around and with him, nobody ever made a case on it, but he was connected. Mm -hmm. And it was like that in every major city. And it was really the mafia out of the 30s and 40s was more part of society than we think of it should be today. But they were they were part of it. They were part of the political organizations. They got out the vote. They were the guys that you went to if you wanted the mm -hmm. vote to go a, you know, a certain way in the city. And they had political contacts in several different precincts, and they'll have one or two that they own. And mm -hmm. so you want the vote out of that. And so that your legitimate, you say legitimate, uh, polit your other politicians and had to deal with them as equals. No mm -hmm. one had to, they couldn't say, well, these are a bunch of criminals. We can't, we just push them aside. And it's always amazing to me how much a part of society that organized crime, the La Cosa Nostra based Italian organized crime, how connected they are to the larger society up until the 80s or 90s, up until the skim trials and the commission trial and those trials put the heads away and after the federal government really came down on top of them, they were an integral part of society, for better or for worse. Yeah, and some of them, I mean, like there's this one guy who was a big in the gay bar scene, uh, Alfred Miniacci, he was, he was a coin-op vendor. And he got his start by selling jukebox, uh, not jukebox, slot machines to, to Frank Costello. And they became tight all the way up until the end. We attempted hit on Costello in 1957. And Miniachi got out of the coin-op business in 1969. He sold his businesses for $6 million in 1969 to uh, AR, uh, what was it? ARA, to ARA. It was a publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, yeah, Airmark, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he was he was one of the major uh, financiers for the mafia, for the Genovese family in particular, of their restaurants and bars, including the gay clubs like like, like the Peppermint Lounge. He worked with Johnny Biello and then Maddie Anello. They both owned. Maddie took over the Peppermint Lounge after Salerno had Biello whacked, I guess, I think in 1967. And then Bianello took over the Peppermint Lounge. But Miniachi was one of the key financiers of all of these establishments, in addition to providing the vending machines and everything and the coin-ops. The thing that struck me about him is he was such in Costello's image in the sense that business suit, proper gentleman. He started Boys Town of Italy, did a lot of charity work, was big on the social scene, and he presented the image of being a legitimate businessman. No, he just happened to be registered to the Genovese crime family. <laughs> just a really, really well-liked guy. And he was kind of, I mean, never spent a day in jail, never got indicted for anything, investigated forever. But he was the model for, for Frank Costello. I mean, this is how the Genovese crime family does it best. Just legitimate businessman, 
Everything's on paper. They're huge in the loan sharking industry through private finance companies through which their cash was laundered. But it was all legitimate in this, not all, I shouldn't say that. But to the extent they made sure they lent to companies because the company was exempt from the usury laws and didn't pay back just for a close. You know, we didn't break the kneecaps. There wasn't a lot of reason for law enforcement to come down hard on these guys because they tried to avoid the messiness that gets the bloody headlines. Yeah, they do. Boring office men, you know. So they may not make an exciting movie. (laughs) Really? All right. Philip Crawford, I appreciate it. Book is The Mafia and the Gays. He has two others, railroaded the homophobic prosecution of Brandon Woodruff and Queer Joints, Wise Guys, and G-Men. That sounds intriguing. He has a website, Philip Crawford Jr., all one word, Philip Crawford Jr. dot wordpress.com. And he's on Goodreads, and those books are on Amazon too, if you want to find out more about his work and Want to buy that book? Why? Well, it sounds like a pretty good one. I, I'm sorry. I have to apologize. I didn't get it before we, we did this. It's kind of came up pretty fast, but it sounds intriguing. All right. I really appreciate it, Gary. It was nice okay, to meet so, you. All right. Nice to meet you. Thank all right. You. Take care, man. Bye. I thank you for listening and supporting Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If you want some more connection to the show, find my private Facebook group called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. I only admit podcast listeners. Have a public page, Twitter feed, and Instagram all under Gangland Wire. Or you can email me at ganglandwire at gmail.com. As a lot of you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. On the shop page, you'll find a donate button to support the podcast. Now, I realize that some of you may be out of work because of this dang virus, and I don't want you to even think about donating. But for the rest of you guys, for $25 or more, I have different rewards depending on how much you give me. Plus, another way to support my work is to go to Amazon and rent my documentaries, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or encourage your friends to do that. I have a book about the Las Vegas casino skimming investigation titled Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now, that's a mouthful. I don't know what I was thinking when I titled that book. If you get the Kindle version, you'll get links to hear the actual wiretaps. Finally, don't forget you can buy me a cup of coffee or a shot in a beer with your Venmo app at Gangland Wire. You know, recently I've started hosting some Zoom calls that are restricted to fans who have supported the podcast in some manner. Besides cash donations, some of you are helping by becoming editors on my Facebook pages and keeping them filled with fresh content. And if anybody wants to write short blog pieces, no more than 100 or 150 words, and attach relevant photos, you can send those to me and I'll put those up on the Facebook. I have folks already like Ken C. from Arizona and Basil T. from Dallas helping with that, and they have both been doing a great job. I really appreciate what you guys have done. Every Facebook page can use more and more accurate content. People out there are starved for good, accurate content. Let me know if you're interested. Time for my public service announcement. Right now, Gangland Wire is supporting PTSD treatment and recovery for veterans. If you're a vet and you think you may need help with PTSD, call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can text at 838-255. The VA also has a website with lots of resources at www.ptsd.va.gov. Well, as we used to say, I'm 1042. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.